So we've been, uh, we've been going through more recently uh, a study on uh, um, really understanding who we are as, as mankind and um, part of kind of understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. And this is going to be the last one um, really before the new year because next week we have business meeting and then we have... Um, I got to think about it. I think it's the 26th after that, the day after Christmas. We won't be meeting that night, that evening. And then we'll meet for the time following that, which is January 2nd, uh, Wednesday, January 2nd. And on that day, we will start uh, going through a timeline of Old Testament history. So we'll start um, in, you know, way, way back in Abraham, and then we'll start working our way forward through the timeline understanding what's uh, transpiring, not just in regards to Israel, but also what's going on in the surrounding areas and how those things are changing and how they impact the biblical text that we have in front of us. And um, so everything from what's going on in the text to also what's going on politically around it um, that kind of informs those, those times. I really hope, hope to be able to spend a, a rather lengthy time right now. I'm looking at hopefully about a year in the Old Testament just going through that timeline. Um, one of the reasons why I want to do it that way is because um, the plan right now is 2020 for the uh, right around the spring break time, or at least it should be spring break for University of Alabama, is we would, we would want to plan, we're planning a trip, or I'm planning a trip to take us to Israel for those that want to go. And so hopefully the, uh, the way it'll flesh out is we'll have a year in the Old Testament of just going through the timeline. We'll then, in the beginning of, of the year of 2020, um, step into some of the New Testament and start talking about Jesus, dealing with the doctrine of Christ, which would be next in our study anyway, um, and then dealing with, obviously, all the things birth-wise and everything historically with the, the New Testament before then uh, going. That's at least the plan. Um, so as the saying goes, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Uh, <laughs> doesn't stop you from making plans, obviously. So that's kind of the tentative plan, at least right now. Um, but we'll be stepping through the Old Testament and going through a timeline to give us a better picture of kind of the lay of the land that we find ourselves in throughout the Old Testament. That'll involve going through a lot of the, the uh, biblical books, obviously, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, and those kinds of things um, as well. So that will be starting uh, January 2nd. So that's the plan as of right now. Uh, but what we've been doing is we've been talking about being made in the image of God and what that, really, what that really means. And there's a few things that we've said about that is that it's pretty clear from the biblical text in Genesis 1 and, um, and 2 that when God made man in his image, he had a certain task in mind. And you can see that back in Genesis 1. If you have your Bibles, I would recommend you having them because we're going to, uh, if you don't, there's the Bible in the pew back in front of you. Genesis 1, we're going to be in 1, 2, and 3 for a large part of tonight. And then we're going to talk about, uh, briefly about um, the fall that we find in, in Genesis chapter 3. And so, um, but what we, what we find there in uh, Verse 26 of chapter 1 is God says, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all everything that, uh, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So there's, it's pretty clear right from the outset that he creates mankind with an intention that they have dominion over the earth. And with that comes a certain set of, uh, as Liam Neeson would put it, necessary skills, right? <laughs> For, for being made in the image of God and, and for having dominion over the earth. Um, but <laughs> those necessary skills we've listed uh, in the past is intelligence, reasoning, ability, emotions, the ability to commune with God, self-awareness, sentience, uh, language, communication ability, uh, the, the presence of a soul uh, or spirit or both, the conscience, uh, having, and then obviously with the, with the express task of having dominion over the earth. Not only that, but it records that he made um, mankind as uh, both male and female, and both are equally created in the image of God. He says that there in the text. So both have the, the, the 
capacities, if you will, as they are made in the image of God to, to have dominion over the earth. Part of their function in having dominion over the earth is coming together and being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. That's another aspect that he's given to us is procreation, right? So together they come together to begin to fulfill that, that purpose of filling the earth and having dominion. It, it, it means, we said, that uh, man, mankind being made in the image of God means at least that mankind is more important than any other creatures on the earth. And that comes as a shock to a lot of animal lovers out there and people that want to say that animals are way more important or equally as important as humans. And it's gra- growing gradually more in the culture where they're, they're getting to be on the same plane. Bible rules decidedly against that and says, no, mankind is more important. They're made in the image of God. Um, we see that not only in Genesis 9, but in James as well. Um, now, last week we talked about there being really two views that have kind of uh, gone throughout church history, really throughout biblical history, as to what mankind is composed of. Some have said that he's body and soul, and that the times where there is used body and uh, where there is used soul and spirit, they are used interchangeably. And that the times where both are referred to in the scriptures is meant to convey the totality of a person and not the individual makeup. And others have said that mankind is body, soul, and spirit, where a soul and a spirit have distinct um, purposes. Both of those views have kind of have permeated the church, I'd say, for the last 2,000 years. The vast majority of people siding with body and soul as opposed to body and soul and spirit. Um, so that's what we've been talking about now. Tonight, I want to talk about the fall uh, of mankind. We see that in Genesis 3, and I, I really want to get down to what is it that we're seeing there in Genesis 3. What is it that we're looking at in Genesis 3? What is, be, what is, what is happening in Genesis 3, and what then is the result of what happens in Genesis 3? Now, to do that, I want to, take, I want to step aside from the notes for just a moment and actually go to the text of Genesis 1 through Genesis 3, and just so that we can all get on the same page as to what's happening. So you may be required to answer some questions, so just here we go. This is a discussion between me and you, all right? Um, So we see first in Genesis 1, what is God doing in Genesis 1? Just somebody remind us what's happening in Genesis 1. Creation. God is creating everything that is everything. Right Before that, there is nothing but God. After Genesis 1, there are a lot of things that are not God, all right, that are, that are there in existence. Okay. Now, what is being said after creating each thing along the way? Well, that's, that's the pattern, right? The pattern that is said in Genesis 1, it is good. If there's a refrain in Genesis 1, that's it. It is good. Behold, it is good. He does something. He says, verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate waters from waters. And then um, and, and he goes on. He creates, uh, and he said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into, into one place and let the dry land appear in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he said, God saw that it was good. And we see this repeated several times throughout Genesis 1. It's good. Now, after he creates mankind, in verse 26 and 27, he says, in verse 29, um, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given Every green plant for food. And it was so. So Adam and Eve are, what are they? They are vegetarians. All right? They are, they, they, any green plant is open to them. The animals are vegetarians. Every green plant is open for food. And God saw that it was, ah, read it, very good. All right? After he looks at the totality of everything that he creates, he says, it is good. Now, we get to chapter 2, and he creates uh, mankind. Uh, 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 We zoom in 
to the creation of Adam. So we look specifically at his creation. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago as to what's going on here. There seems to be some repetition. There seems to be some things that are out of order between Genesis 1 and 2. Was this somebody that came along later and just decided to jot it down in a different way? I don't think so. I think what's happening here is we're not looking at the whole world, but we're zooming into a specific area in Genesis 2. And so in that area, uh, things are, are, look a little bit different. And he's saying before any of this happened, here's how God did it. We're zooming in on, directly on the creation of mankind. So he, he makes Adam out of the dirt of the ground. And then he says in verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16, uh, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. All right, we saw that back in chapter one. He gave fruit. You can eat. You can eat of the plant life, right? You can eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay. What's this about? What's happening here? What has God told the man not to do? Eat of that one tree. You can eat of every other tree, but not of that one tree. What is the tree called? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, up to this point, who has defined good in this book? Okay, God has defined good. Now, there comes a question, and I think what is pretty common for a lot of people is to say once Adam took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he knew what was evil. But I don't think that's the totality of it. I think really what, he's, what we're seeing in the naming of the tree is that he's becoming uh, uh, the dictator of his choices. He's defining now what is good and what is evil, right? Before then, there was no question as to what good is, God has told you, these things are good. This is what you will do. You will do this. You will eat of every tree of the, of, of, of the garden. And Adam did not know any better. So he said, okay. And in his innocence, he is going about doing exactly what God commanded him to do. Now, who is not on the scene yet? Eve is not on the scene yet. She's not there. Next... What happens? He creates Eve, right? The Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. This is in verse 18. A man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on him, and he makes, he makes Eve. He brings her before Adam, and Adam says, uh, that's what that translates to, and he, that's the Hebrew. It translates to, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, the question becomes, what kind of state were Adam and Eve in before the fall? Okay, we describe it as sinless, as perfect. What's that? What? Unity. Unity. They worked together. All right. That has to be the question, right? What was that like? What was it like to be in the garden before the fall? So Moses, who I think is writing this story, gives us really one descriptor to just tell you what it was like before the fall, what kind of state they were in. And he says it this way, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's how he defines it. Because you could say a lot of things about what their life was like. You could say it was perfect, but I describe my own life as that way sometimes. You know, man, this vacation is perfect, right? Relaxing on the beach, this is, this is perfect. That's not how he describes it. That's certainly true, but, but that's not how he describes it. He describes it as they were naked and they were not ashamed. 
Uh, can you imagine what that would be like to be naked and not ashamed? That's how he describes their time prior to the fall. And by the way, how does he describe their time after the fall? They knew that they were naked. That's the change that took place. Now there is shame. So it, 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 it would be kind of like describing it as innocence. Just pure, unadulterated innocence. Um, so when it comes to knowing what is good, you kind of have to know what is evil to know what is good. It seems as though God has told them this is what you do, so that's what we do. There's no question. Like parents and children, it, to some degree, yeah. Um, now, we parent in a fallen world, <laughs> and so that's not always true, but, 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 but yes, yeah, well, that, that, my dad told me that's what it is, and that's what it is, right? That's, that's what we do. There was a show called Lost. Did anybody watch it? Hey, watch Lost. There was this scene, and even if you didn't watch it, you'll, you'll get what I'm talking about, uh, or you'll, you'll catch on pretty quick. Um, there was this, at some point in the show, they discovered that there was this man living on the island in a bunker, and he had been told to punch this button every so many minutes, and I've long forgot how many minutes it was, but he's been, he was told, you just, you punch that button, and if you don't, something bad's going to happen. Well, what's going to happen? We don't know, but you just got to push that button so that it doesn't. And so when you find him in the show, he is just pushing that button. That is what he is doing because that's what he was told. And if he doesn't do it, bad things are going to happen, I guess. But I'm just going to push this button. I think that's similar. That state is similar to the way Adam and Eve are at this moment. Now, I think some people have kind of have said, you know, Adam and Eve, they doubted God. They really went, yeah, I, I hate that God. He's, he's oppressive. I don't think that's the way they were. I think they were completely innocent. They had no knowledge of a distinction between good and evil at all. They just did what God told them to do. What was required to wake them up out of innocence? Someone who knew, right? Someone who knew the difference between good and evil. And so what do we see in the very next verse? Ah, there is a serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay, so he slips in. By the way, serpents are clean or unclean animals. Unclean animals. So if you are a Jew reading this for the first time during the time of Moses, after the law, you're going, hmm, serpent's bad news. Then you hear that he's crafty. Serpent's doubly bad news. I know there's something about this serpent that's really awful. Now, we believe this. Is this true? Did this happen? Yes, right? Uh, Satan, we would say, is, is really possessing this serpent um, and is manipulating these, this sweet, young, innocent couple. And he's deceiving them, right? He's, he's set up to deceive them and introduce them to potentiality. Imagine what could be. You don't know this yet, but think about this for just a second. He said to the woman... Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, who wasn't there when God gave the command? Eve. Proof of the fact that they are innocent and they are wanting to do what God had said, I think, initially. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What does Eve do? She, she adds rules, but is she adding rules to be mean, to be vindictive, to give something that God didn't say? No, I think she's, <laughs> she's probably told by Adam, maybe, I don't know, but she was at some point told one way or the other, hey, that's bad news. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm not even going to get near it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to be anywhere in the vicinity. So what does the devil do? He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you'll surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. What will you know? 
What will you know? Good and evil. At this moment, they know only obedience to the Lord. They don't know there's an alternative to that. There's no, there's no difference. But if you eat, you will, your eyes will be opened and you will know good and evil. And so, what does it say? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for what? Oh, well, you can eat of it. There's, there's fruit on it. it. Yeah, you can eat of it. It was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. In other words, it seems as though what she's waking up to or what she's thinking now is, well, this makes perfect sense. That now I don't have to depend on God to determine what I should do. I can determine it for myself. So she's breaking away. She's desiring to break away. She sees the logic of the sin, right? It, it all makes perfect sense. And once she does, she gives to her husband. And what does, and what does he do? He ate it. And as soon as he ate, what happens? Their eyes are opened, verse 7. Their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, it's interesting when they hear the sound of God coming, and Adam says, we, we were naked, and so we hid ourselves. He says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? One of two things happened. Either you ate or someone told you. Because I didn't tell you. I created you in a state of innocence. Okay. So, does it make sense? Do you understand that what's happening here is that they've lost the innocence with which they were created? Now, why were they created in a state of innocence? What's that? Holiness. Okay, so that they could be in relationship with God. Okay. Okay. To define it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. They were dependent. Why didn't they die? What's that? Why didn't they die? Say it one more time. Why didn't they die? Immediately? Yeah. Um, well, I would say that they were set on a course of death. Um, yeah. So it, it, you, could, you could see it one of two ways. Either what God was saying is in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, meaning day is like an age in the time after that. You will, you will be set on a course for death. Or you could also look at it, and it's probably really both, as he's being merciful and saving them, essentially. Um, at least according to, uh, to Genesis, uh, once your, your eyes were open. You, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know that, it's, um, that it is a, uh, it's not sin. I don't think it's sinful. I think it, it is more, um, they now know. Their eyes are open and they know there's something different about this state of me than a clothed state. Does that make sense? And so that brings about a, a kind of shame. But other than that, that's all I got. I mean, that's all there is. So, Marion. Yeah, expo. I mean, I think that, yeah. I mean, not to be too vulgar, but how do we all feel in that, in that state that's exposed? It's interesting that they have a desire to know, but then a fear of being known. And they have to cover up and know. Yeah. And they cover up. Do you think then, as like their conscience, like they they knew then that it was that something was different based off of what they've done against God? I see. I don't know because it would it would mean that naked is nakedness is sinful. 
And I'm not sure that I can really say that, at least from the text that's in front of me. All I can say is that now what they knew was more than simply innocence that they were created in. And the innocence uh, necessitated, like Timothy had pointed out, the innocence necessitated a dependence on God. He's defining everything for them. So they're depending, depending on him to define everything. But they see the opportunity to begin to define things for themselves, to be, define good and evil for themselves, and so they seize upon it. And so you know, that, the opening of their eyes, obviously they, they see that they're naked as well and, and they're ashamed. But why were they created in a state of innocence? What was their function? What was their purpose? To walk with God. To what? Procreation. They were created to do. They obviously needed to do that. But why did he say, let us make man in our image? Let him have dominion, dominion, right? Part of the the giving of dominion was that they were uh, adhering strictly to the word of God. What God said, do, they did. I mean, you have to remember that these people are created in the image of God. They're his vice regents, which means they're his representatives on the earth. They are his representatives on the earth. He created them in a state of innocence, and as Timothy pointed out, I think correctly, dependence. Totally on him for everything. But now, once the innocence has been removed, that is not how I created you to be. That is not the representative that I created you to be on the earth. So what's the penalty? Death. You, you have to die. Yeah. Now, so when, when man is able to discern good and evil, what happens to his heart? What is heart? What is his heart desire? It seems as though the biblical narrative is pointing you toward the answer, evil. How do we know that? Turn to Genesis chapter six. We're just now. A lot of evil has happened between Genesis three and Genesis six. Cain has killed his brother Abel, and we see the story of Lamech and uh, several others. But here we get, we get to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we're three chapters in, and we see that it was a bad thing. For man to be exposed to the knowledge of evil because it turns out the knowledge of good was not nearly as appealing as the knowledge of evil. It was akin to like a a magnet that was set on the same poles at first, but once that knowledge was flipped over to evil, it just it, it gravitated that way and sought the kind of immediate gratification that evil gives us, and it was only there continually. Now, I think one of the reasons why this is, this is really important is because there's a, a biblical arc that's being prepared for us as we look at Genesis chapter 3. The first is, here's Adam in the garden, and he's being told to take the garden that I've given you and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the idea of him being planted in the garden is that he's in this like perfect little patch, but that his, his goal, his responsibility is to be fruitful, multiply, and as a, as a family of people, fill the earth and put it under your uh, subduing, ha- have dominion over it, uh, control it, tame it, uh, g- go out beyond it, the borders that I've given you and, and fill the earth and subdue it. Well... When we get to Revelation chapter 21, this is similar to the picture that we see of the new heavens and the new earth. Go ahead and flip there at the end of the book. Um, 
21, verse 22. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never shut by day, never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So here's this garden, just, just here's this filled earth garden, perfected, and here are the gates to it, and the gates never shut. Why do you have gates? Keep bad guys out. Okay? So then the natural question goes, the gates are always open. There's no night. This is how we ended up. Where we are in Genesis 3 is, here's this unclean serpent. What, what happens? Well, the next verse tells you. Um, they will bring their glory in and their honor in, uh, of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever Enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we have this picture of this global garden that has filled the earth. So Christ, in other words, the Lamb has been fruitful, He has multiplied, He has filled the earth, and now we have this garden scene that is now perfected and global, and the gates are open, and this time we know. No unclean thing will ever enter it uh, because the presence of the Lamb and God Almighty are there. They're they're keeping watch over the garden. The new Adam, in other words, is keeping watch over the garden and will never let any unclean thing enter it. Right? Does that make sense? Are you following the track of the biblical story, how John is tying the strings together? Go ahead, Shannon. So why did John let that happen? That is a good question. One we're not told the answer to. <laughs> um, so, but let's go back to our notes real quick um, as we look at, just very quickly here, um, what are we looking at in the in-between? Um, as some people call it, between the trees. We've got the tree of life in the, in the Garden of Eden, and we've got the tree of life at the end of Revelation, and we live in life between the trees, so we're here where there is... Fa- so it, all of this, the purpose of, of going through all of this is to really answer what is the fall of man? What, what, what has happened, and who, who does it affect? So... Let's define sin first. It seems as though, I I, I like uh, Wayne Grudem's definition of it here. It's pretty simple, but I think it's very good. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in an act, attitude, or nature. So that means that sin uh, includes not only individual acts, such as stealing or lying or committing murder or whatever, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes God requires of us. So somebody read there in the packet, Exodus 20, verse 17. So there's the, there's the act of stealing, which is condemned as sin, but it's beyond that, too, to coveting, just a desire in your heart for what your neighbor has. Jesus points to the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. We could read Matthew 5, honestly, starting in verse 20 and going on, and we would find the same, similar things that Jesus is pointing out, that there's desires in your heart that are attitudes, if you will, that are also uh, sinful. So that means that a life that is pleasing to God is one that has moral purity, not only in its actions, but also in its desires of the heart. We see that in Mark 12, 30 and many others where Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's actions, that's attitudes, that's affections, that's everything. All the desires of your entire being is to be devoted to the Lord, right? Okay, now, 
The other thing we have to understand is that our very nature, which is the next point here, our very nature, the internal character, the essence of who we are as persons can also be sinful. Somebody read Jeremiah 17, 9. How about Romans 5, 8? Okay, we as people, we're sinners. Romans 7, 18, somebody read that. All right, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. So he points to everything there. There's actions, there's attitudes, and by nature, you're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us in a, in a similar uh, position of being, by nature, children of wrath. Now, there's several things that, that I, I think Wayne, Wayne Grudem points out. Several people point this out, and I think these are, these are good observations to make of the text of Genesis 2 and 3 and what's happening there. He says, for the original couple, their, uh, their sin struck at the basis for knowledge. For it, it gave a different answer to the question, what is true? God uh, had said that Adam and Eve would die if they ate from the tree, Genesis 2, 17. And the serpent said you will not die. So there's the question. What is true? And Adam and Eve were tempted to answer it two different ways. Their sin struck at the basis of moral standards, for it gave a different answer to the question, what is right? God had said that it was morally right for Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of, of the one tree in Genesis three, uh, Genesis 2.17, but the serpent suggested that it would be right to eat of the fruit um, and that in eating it, Adam and Eve would become, quote unquote, like God, in that they would have this power of discernment. Now you would really know all of the things that are going on. Um, their sin gave them a different answer to the question, who am I? The correct answer was that Adam and Eve were creatures of God, dependent on him, and always to be subordinate to him as their creator and Lord. But Eve and then Adam succumbed to the to the temptation to be like God in, in verse 3 and 5. So they, they not only wanted to redefine what is right and what is wrong or what is right, what is right for them, but they also wanted to become like him. But he didn't create them for that reason. He created them to be his, um, his image on the earth. Um, so it's evident in the subsequent narrative in Genesis, like we talked about, and the rest of Scripture, that the nature of the couple after their initial sin, is passed down from person to person. So we see that happening after Genesis 3, that what then happens to the next child is they understand what is evil, and they understand what is good, right? Cain is very quiet, and God says, what's going on? And he says, if you do well, will it not be, will, will it not be good for you? And he says, where's your, where's your brother Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? There's this, there's this battle going on between he and God, and God knows that there's something going on in his heart before he ends up killing his brother, right? There's on and on, story after story, what we see is that not only sin but death has permeated the human heart to the extent that they actually know good and evil. So what that means then is that uh, I think rightly, according to Genesis 3, if you were to be able to set a baby out in the middle of the woods and let's say he were be able to nourish himself and were be able to grow up, he would be fallen, okay? The reason that that's important to understand that the biblical narrative is headed that direction is because there's debate on that topic. And I can't fathom that debate. But the debate goes something like this, that... Um, that a person needs to come to an awareness of sin and then actually commit a sin in order to be worthy of death. And that's not the way the biblical narrative is depicting human existence. We are guilty and worthy of death because we are not what God created us to be. We are 
aware of good and evil. And simply the awareness of good and evil is that original sin nature that is passed down from person to person. We are aware of it. We can choose evil. And the fact that we can choose evil is evidence of the fact that we're fallen. Yes? Does this make sense? Now, go ahead. That the nature of the couple after their initial sin is passed down from person to person. Yeah. Yeah, look at Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, what does he say there? He doesn't say, all will sin. He uses a past tense, all sinned. All of us are wrapped up in Adam's sin. Once he fell, once he became aware, once he knew good and evil, the human race that came from him cannot unknow what was known. I think the biblical text is as simple as that when it comes to the fall. Once we know, we can't unknow. Sean. So that's, that, that makes it clear where we get the sinfulness, the sinfulness of man, mankind. Where do we get that creation's fallen? Oh, that, that all of creation is fallen. Uh, Romans 8. So that, that's one way I can answer it. Go to Romans 8. But out of Genesis, is there anything? Oh, out of Genesis. Um, well, let me think. Creation itself, well, we do know that once uh, Noah gets off the ark, um, we get now the ability not just to eat vegetables, but to eat animals and to kill them. Um, so there's that. Say that one more time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Good point, Timothy. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That, that is true. In the, in, the, in the cursing of Adam and Eve uh, and, the, and the serpent, the ground is cursed. Um, childbearing is, pain, is exceedingly painful. Uh, so I've been told. I don't know if I believe it or not, but. Yeah, there, um, but Paul, I think Paul points it out as, as well that God subjected the earth to futility um, once there was good and evil in the world. And it's the reason that Paul says creation <laughs> groans with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God, the waiting for it to be over, essentially. Um, so I think that, that whole thing puts together the biblical picture of Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. 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 Um, Now, one of the reasons why this is uh, of particular importance is because there's a, there's a, a heresy in the early, early church called Pelagianism, and uh, it denied the doctrine of inherited sin or original sin, this idea that, that once Adam sinned, the human race now was prone to, uh, to sin. But Pelagianism maintains that the original sin um, uh, of, of Adam... Uh, did not taint human nature 
and that moral will is still capable of choosing good or evil without special divine aid. So, go ahead. What? P E L A G I A N I S M. Pelagianism. So it denies this very idea that there was any effect, any residual effect of the fall to such an extent that as we're born, we have the capacity um, to, to fully choose good or evil. There's no impact that the fall has had on us in turning our hearts or predisposing our hearts toward evil. So when it comes to our, uh, the fallenness of man, it seems as though what we've inherited from Adam is a propensity towards evil. I think that's, that's pretty clear in the biblical text, that our hearts once flipped to know good and evil, desire the immediate gratification of evil, and so we gravitate towards it. And this seems to be the reason why God created us in a state of innocence, knowing that in the day that we eat of it, Um, I mean, it's, you know, I, I can tell you in my own life, <laughs> I can testify um, that there's a, there's a lot of gratification in sin. There's a lot of instant gratification well, in I'm sin. Thinking, well, no, I, I'm, I'm on, on the same page on that, but I'm talking about uh, at the beginning, uh, when Adam and Eve knew goodness, Healing? I mean, um, when it comes to like the the um, the technical term would be the epistemological reality of of why you would be attracted to sin. I don't know that we get a, just a concise definition of that, but I can see in my own life why I desire sin uh, over over good, and I can also say that. You know what's given to us in in Christ. He sends to us the Helper, and it, it it's obvious he he says he's going to lead us in righteousness, um, convict the world of sin, that kind of thing. Um, what Christ gives to us is a competing nature that does battle against our fallen nature, so that a Christian has now the desire of the heart to pursue the things of God. Um, by faith. And uh, so it's, it's evident that not only do we desire it, but that without the Spirit of God, we don't have a desire for the things of God. And so what, what that would lead me to believe is that Adam and Eve are really moving positionally away from God in, cho- in choosing evil. And once they move away from God, the heart that doesn't have God right at hand anymore is inclined toward toward evil. So, go ahead, Jen. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously in the in the fall, there's obviously a knowledge of good, right? That that comes, I think, with if you know evil, you know there's good's the other side of the coin. Like, so you, you can't have one without the other, and so 
there's a there's a knowledge of of that as well. And so there is, I think, a, de- a desire in some that would um, seek or at least understand, know that there's this good. Yeah. But I, I don't think that that's devoid of the Spirit of God, um, giving, giving them that insight, knowledge. Right, right. And so it, 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 it's not, that's what he and I are saying, essentially the same thing, that it's not devoid of, of the Spirit of God at all. Um, Yes. Yes. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, yeah. Go ahead. Um, One more question, then we'll close. So, we kind of skipped, I mean, and this is, could be a conversation for another time. Went over the whole, like, Eden is being guarded by a cherubim with swords, and, like, we've explored most of the world, right? Like, so what, where does that go? And I know that's a hard question to answer. Yeah, there's a flood three chapters later, which but, fills okay, the so earth. The I would, th- I would think. Yeah, I would think. Uh, I would think uh, that would that would pretty much destroy. No, no, no. It's not an embarrassing question. I, I, I think that the probably the easiest the easiest answer would be the total deluge of the entire world, in in three chapters is going to take care of any residue that's there. I, that's what I would I would say is probably the most natural explanation. Because I'm like, you, I mean, is that not something that you've ever thought about? Sure. Like, okay. Yeah. So no. Like, so no, it's a valid question. It, guarded by these angels. No, it's a valid question. I just think that that's I think that's what the expectation of the of the biblical picture is in three chapters is. And then they wipe it out. There's a there's a total destruction of the earth. Okay. Yeah. Maybe so. <laughs> that they they may understand where it where it potentially was. I just wouldn't expect if there was a flood of the earth that the topography to be exactly the same as it as it was before. So what, if that's the case. Somebody have it because I don't have my notes in front of me. Responsible. It's one of the two. Accountable. Yeah. Accountable is what I've got. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's pray because Tom's going to kill me. So <laughs> you got to get your children. <laughs> uh, Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm grateful to just be able to, uh, to think deeply, to talk um, about um, issues at hand that we, we find in the biblical text. Uh, I pray for our time together that it be uh, fruitful in just growing in understanding of what the text is saying and what it doesn't say, um, how, what that means for us, and um, what that means as far as who we are in you. We are grateful that in Christ we have um, a new Adam. We have um, a, a one who we can rest assured will keep us uh, secure. Um, not only until the day of his return, but long thereafter. And uh, I pray that with that, that security for us comes not a resting on our laurels, but um, movement out into the world with nothing to fear. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.